This is the Aon Bide interview. And with us, we have the pleasure of being joined by Anthony Garcia to discuss his book, Artificial Intelligence and the New Messiah, and plenty of other sundries as well. Anthony, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, yourself and Vance. I'm excited. Oh, we're excited too. I, I really enjoyed your book, and I know our audience will enjoy it too, all that you have to share with the world that needs to be sharing in these very high weirdness times. And as Anthony mentioned, we've got with us Vance Saatchi, the Moondog. Vance, how are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. I'm really interested to hear about this connection between the Dead Sea Scrolls and artificial intelligence after having just struggled artificial stupidity all day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. You deal with uh, this kind of stuff during your day job, huh? Oh, yeah. But it's the human stupidity that must worry you the most. Well, not too much human contact anymore. I'm just sitting here by myself, cranking <laughs> away. <laughs> In your own little world. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Anthony, so the audience uh, can find or gain a, get a little perspective. Uh, tell us about your background and how you became a writer of these esoteric subjects. It really started... Um... My family belongs to a, a religious sect called Edmanos Penitentes, uh, translated the Brothers of Penance uh, from Northern New Mexico. And I grew up here in Colorado, but that was always uh, something as part of that I knew and my parents specifically, my mother shared with me. And uh, specifically, uh, it revolves around uh, uh, music, the Alabados, A-L-A-B-A-D-O-S, and I have a website that uh, relates to that, alabados.com. And in there uh, were uh, just songs of praise, you know. And uh, I wrote about that website. And um, what had happened was that in 2011, after doing a few years' work of uh, translation of different people's alabados, um, I was approached to do uh, a couple uh, translation of, a, of two Quavernos notebooks. And uh, the gentleman asked me to translate and to, what's the word I want to use? Um, it's an appropriate word, it was decode one of the plays. And one book was a regular other bothers notebook, had about 10 songs in it. The second one was a play. Well, admonos don't do plays. And I was well aware of that. And I saw that and I said, I looked up and I said, this is not an alabado. This, <laughs> this is a play. They smiled at me and go, this is a play. And they explained to me that uh, it was a, a, a play of cryptic origin concealing the Jewish history of the New Mexican Southern Colorado's Edmanos within this play. They yeah, got a little giggle out of that. It's in my home at the table. I'm here right now talking. In the, in the, I'm still not certain what they really wanted. And uh, they, I was very lucky, fortunate they selected me. And they said, but you have to tell our history. Well, that always comes with a catch when somebody does that, if you can imagine, <laughs> yeah. right? So they were very serious about it. And I said, okay, and I, I understood their history and their family values and how that all worked. And I translated it and lo and behold, you know, I found uh, within this play 30 Hebrew words and a, excuse me, eight Hebrew words and about 30 what we call Ladino words, 
which are half uh, Spanish, half Hebrew. Well, that's not supposed to be in any written writing anywhere, but it was in this play. And that's really what started me. And that's what I wrote my first book on called The Portal of Light. And, um, you know, I wrote that as a nonfiction, it's almost 300 pages. And that's what started it. Wonderful. And what was the name of the play? Was uh, that the Exodus the, play? Well, that is the Exodus play. The book is called The Portal of Light, but the play I named the, that was in the Quaderno, I called it the Exodus play because I thought, well, these people are again hiding and fleeing. So I called it the Exodus play. Very interesting. And for the audience that might not know, uh, a Ladino is a, what an, a, a Spanish Jewish uh, individual Correct. who has fled Spain or kicked out because of the Inquisition. And, and uh, is it the same as a, a Marano? That's uh, about ah, the same. You know your little history. Yes, that is. Marano yeah. means what? That means uh, pig. And, mm -hmm. and the reason they called them pigs is because they were so good at hiding you couldn't differentiate between a Spanish Catholic and a Spanish Jew. Mm -hmm. So they got so upset, they started calling them Maranos or pigs because they couldn't, couldn't differentiate. Yeah, same way in Portugal, where I'm from. My exactly. ancestors are actually Jewish, and then they converted. But yeah, there you go. You could not tell them apart, except for whatever secrets my ancestors did. <laughs> there you go. So that's awesome. And, and then where you live, there is a big Ladino community. There are in Denver, there are in, in the San Luis Valley, definitely northern New Mexico. Um, you know, when the, they've actually followed what they call the moradas, which is little chapels. And they had chapels, you know, from Colorado, Nevada, California, uh, Arizona. So they actually at one time were prominent in a lot of different areas. Very cool. As you started following this play, how did you get interested in the Essenes or the Dead Sea Scrolls? Uh, obviously, that's the big topic. Here's what happened. I, I wrote about all this, but there are two characters in the play I could not locate. Uh, one was the Edmontano, who was a time travel traveler, and the second was the Portal of Light. And then, uh, lo and behold, when the Dead Sea Scrolls came to Denver, I started doing my research on that. And those two characters were within the Book of Enoch. Mm -hmm. And they were right there. And I couldn't believe it. That's when I when I have those kind of instances, my hands go pumping up and down. I go, I found you. Because, you know, I'd looked all over for them. I couldn't find them. Wow. What were the two characters again? The, the Portal of Light. Ermitaño. Okay. Ermitaño and the Brother of Light. And the, ah. and the Portal of Light. Fascinating. Maybe for the audience... You could explain those who might not know or the elevator pitch. Uh, who exactly are the Essenes? And uh, of course, as some wonder, how do you connect these scenes to the Dead Sea Scrolls? The scenes are interesting because the word Essene is not mentioned in either by the Bible or the Torah. But they were of critical importance in the first year BC because when the Romans are coming to con conquer and basically burn and raise all the temples in Jerusalem, the, the rabbis went out throughout the lands of Judea and collected all the very important scrolls. But they didn't know what to do with them. They knew they had to hide them or conceal them so the Romans would not get them because they were going to torch them. And the Essenes were a brotherhood, if you can imagine, our hippies. Anti-materialism, anti-participation thing, 
of religious organization. They're anti-temple. Uh, they didn't participate in anything. They liked to do their own thing. And one thing they had in common with the hippies is that the oneness between spirituality and nature. And because they're that way, they, you know, didn't go to temple. They were historically Pharisees, but they studied on their own. And they were so good at it, they were writing scrolls of what they call true Israel, their own, their own sacred studies. Uh, but pretty, pretty much practicing what the, uh, the uh, rabbis would do, but didn't include rabbis. And uh, there were two types of Essenes. Uh, one, they, were, they, they lived one, so they didn't belong to the temple. And one example is they lived in Galilee. And guess who was born in Galilee? That's yeah. Nazarene, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, the reason they're important is because Jesus was raised as an Essene. And that's very important because when you understand that, you know, who he is and what he stood for and uh, his philosophies in life, they were definitely influenced as the Essene. So uh, when people look back in society and they go, who is Jesus? They, they don't know who he is from age 30 when he started public speaking and public preaching. So prior to that, really, he wasn't a scene. So that's uh, so that getting back to your question, there were two types of scenes, one that lived in rural areas and the second areas that lived in what they call the fort called Masada, which is about 12 miles east of Jerusalem. And it was a fort. And that's where uh, the more organized, uh, steadfast, um, Essene Brotherhood can be found. They call themselves Brothers of Light. Um, and uh, interesting, that's what the Manus Penitentes call themselves, Brother of Light, you know, 2,000 years later. So, um, so they're very important to society and to uh, what's going to happen next. So that's who the Essenes were. Interesting because so we can reconstruct it just uh, to make sure that you had these scenes, but you the scenes were the ones who lived in the the Qumran community in the caves again, away from society more or less. And then when the Romans came to eventually destroy the Second Temple, yes. uh, the Pharisees and others hid these very valuable scrolls and handed it off to the Essenes who hid them in Qumran and other places. Correct. And what's interesting, I know they wrote a ledger of where they put these tunnels and caves, and that has not been located. What hasn't been located? A ledger of where they hid the, 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 the scrolls in the caves. Oh, interesting. They, Very they interesting. created that for sure. Mm-hmm. Now, go ahead real quick. One thing I want to mention, the scenes are led by one person called the teacher of righteousness. Right. He's never been disclosed about who he is. But there was that leadership that did that. They also talked about a wicked priest. Do we know who the wicked priest might be? Or is it still just all speculation, Anthony? Well, it's written within the scrolls, both of those, those persons. But they're not identified. Interesting. Yeah. Well, that's brought in a lot of speculation. And it, it, no, and you are right. Uh, we do have stories of uh, when the Romans came and attacked the Second Temple, 
they would get scrolls and wrap them around a priest and burn him on fire. They just didn't exactly. care. They were going to wipe out all this wisdom that was collected. So it was a good thing. And yeah, when the Dead Sea Scrolls came out, they had a, a lot of press in the 1940s, uh, late 1940s, because the church and everybody thought this would prove the biblical traditional story but uh, that's not what we got was it anthony <laughs> sort of confounded uh, the powers that be well what's interesting is that um what has come out from these scrolls is that um i link it to jesus specifically because they do specific things that only christians do um belief in heaven afterlife angels spiritual angels and spirituality and um i know you can ask me next about john the baptist but you know that that was their values and john the baptist was jesus first cousin and so i think we have some very direct links about uh who the scenes were who, who the nazarene was and it's very it's very very, very important yeah, I mean, um, who mentions the Essenes tradition? We've got, what, Josephus, a few of the church fathers. Uh, yeah. Who else talks about them? Again, there's not much out there. Not even not even some of the historical figures of the first century, like Phony the Elder, the Elders, they don't, they don't mention them at all. No. They've just been, uh, they're just, they're, uh, their esoteric thinking really, uh, pushes them off scares them off so your group's thinking about the strict philosophies you know it's right here oh that's for sure and they also i think it's uh philo talks about the therapeute do you think these scenes and the therapeute are one and the same these healers magic healers well that's how they uh that you know that's exactly how uh those young men were raised to think of themselves as healers. Mm -hmm. They actually used to call themselves physicians or doctors. Um, so there could be some linkage there. And what, uh, yeah, what were some of the rituals of these scenes? I think, uh, well, we could say baptism, but uh, I think the Jews practice that mikvah anyway. Uh, what were some of their, uh, yeah, their practices? I, th I mean, your book obviously details a lot of them which are fascinating which we don't really see anywhere else in uh, judaism but uh, was what dream interpretation holistic therapy astrology all that anything i'm missing no you're you're right on right on board there they would take one step back is the way they did it i found it interesting imagine uh, first century where they're walking down around barefoot or with sandals and everything Within the Masada, they had about 13 cisterns, and the cisterns had steps going in and then out. Mm -hmm. And wow. every morning they would bathe in white clothes and then and, and walk out the other stairwell out. And that was the way they started their day. Some people, you know, were farmers, gatherers, took care of the, the Masada in terms of foods, but other Edmanos studied. The scripture, and that's what I want to make very important. Uh, when the copper scrolls were created, um, the longest one they found was about 27 foot made out of copper and imprinted. Wow, 27 that, foot. <laughs> yeah, but that was the one where, you know, they, the, the study of the astrology and that philosophy 
and how they how they did that was just amazing. And you know, while most of the world was you know riding on caves, these guys were riding. <laughs> on, you see what I'm saying? They're just yeah. so advanced for their age. So it's not a wonder to me why the Pharisee leadership chose the Essenes to hide their material because they were actually ahead of you know of of the Pharisees in a number of ways. So um, they just had some unique ways of doing these. Um, they studied at night under candle, um, usually in twos and threes, and um, took a long time to study. And, you know, they took their time and they just really, just amazing that they studied the philosophy of, of the of the sacred books. They were just really into it. Yeah, indeed. And do you speculate what might be their influence? I mean, were they really an ancient Jewish society could they have been an influence of the persian or the sumerians or greek mysticism influence so do you have, have you ever wondered about that anthony well keep in mind that the the scenes originally were mystics mm-hmm. they studied the stars and and in fact you know the the real i'm going to say astrological influence came from the Aramaic speaking brothers. They came from Egypt. Mm-hmm. So studying uh, that kind of material there and bringing it forth. But what was important about the scenes was that uh, they were open to other philosophies and wisdom. So if a band came in, for example, from India, and they had music, because they always have music and guitar, the, the Indians were the ones who brought the guitar to the New World. They bought music, if they bought philosophy, information on the stars, it was shared freely between each two. And that's the way it is, because once you start talking about astrology, you know, everybody comes on this same level. It, it's just the way it is. So the influences can come from, from um, Samaritans. It can come from Egypt. It can come from India. And they were just open to that. Now, picture yourself as a young Jesus, and he hears all this stuff. And when he goes to preach, he remembers a lot of that stuff. The issue I'm having with the with the Christian books is they talk about him, you know, saying things in parables. Well, I know darn well he knew all about astrology and all these other things from these from these other teachers, but it's not shared. So they kind of ignore the Essenes, who they stood for and what they knew and the, and the wisdom they had. Yeah, that is true. I would certainly agree with that. And I think uh, I know another thing about the scenes or the Qumran community, and this was something of reading the work of uh, Robert Eisenman and Richard Carrier, and the scenes were very, uh, A, they were apocalyptic, they expected a, a battle, a spiritual or end time battle, but they also, unlike regular Judaism or what became uh, uh, mainstream Judah, rabbinical tr- Judaism that thought they'd be a priest and a king, they really thought that the Messiah would come and he would be, you might say, a spiritual Messiah, a magical Messiah, uh, uh, for lack of better words, a supernatural Messiah, right? Are we talking the Pharisees? The Essenes. The, the Essenes? The Essenes, remember, they followed the 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 uh, the the constellation equator. And it takes about a year of human time to follow that to know when the new age is coming. So they at, at that time of year one, 
they knew that age was coming. And anytime that happens, an important historical figure appears. So they knew something big was on the horizon. They also knew that the Romans were coming to basically wipe them out. The scenes will always connect to the creator. It's very important. So they expected a child born Messiah to be born, to appear. On the other hand, the Pharisees wanted and expected an adult, an adult Messiah type to appear to fight the Romans. So um, in doing so, the young child was forthcoming and they knew that. And um, if I take you a step back, if you look at Judaic history, if you go to the age of Gemini, it was Abraham and Noah who showed up. Age of Taurus was Moses. Age of Aries was Daniel. The age of Pisces is Jesus and Nazareth. And now in our current age of Aquarius is I'm the anointed one, who I think is going to be the Jewish Messiah who is going to be the anointed one. But what about timelines? I mean, traditional timeline, Anthony, you've got, well, the Qumran community, the scenes are there, but then you have the birth of Jesus, then you have the execution of Jesus, and then it's another generation or so before the Roman Jewish war stars and the destruction of the temple, and of course, the fall of Masada soon after. I mean, the scenes must have seen, did they feel this was, they must have seen that this is a complete failure. We just got destroyed by this evil empire. Well, they knew that um, when the Romans approached them and started building their bridges to cross over into their forts, um, a new leadership, leadership came on board there and they separated the, the scenes that would fight versus the ones that were non-physical that wouldn't fight so and when they did that they realized they had a few fighters to take on the roman army and that's why they martyred the 200 brothers martyred within the masada mm -hmm. and when the when the romans entered finally went over the scale of the the fort they were shocked <laughs> so they anticipated that you know this you know the the sacrifice had to be made and in doing so, you know, they hid the scrolls and they never get credit for it. Yeah, because uh, the isn't the official story that everybody just committed suicide, like Jim Jones, or they drank Kool-Aid or something, they killed each other. They martyred by sword, yeah. Yeah, and that was, that was definitely the end of history. And the Dead Sea Scrolls that we find at Qumran, uh, just so the audience can get a little refresher for those that might not know, you've got what, 930 scrolls? Uh, and uh, this is a huge cache. I mean, so basically, as we see it, they saw, uh, could we say it's a mixture of scrolls that the scenes thought were important, plus scrolls that the general priesthood in Jerusalem thought it was important. Correct. And they and just the became ones, the and caretakers of this. Correct, and the and the caves closest to the to the Masada are the the most important mm. to the scene. So the copper scrolls, for example, are very hidden right there. And there's about 12, 13 caves, and they found a new one last year. 
So there's more caves, I'm thinking. Oh, yeah, I'm sure there's a lot more. And you have quite a variety. You've got, uh, let's see, you you have definitely have them listed in your book, Artificial Intelligence and the New Messiah. You've got Genesis, Psalms, the book of Lachme, or Lamech, uh, the book of Enoch. So this is quite a variety. And uh, a lot of this, a lot of these texts did sort of give uh, credence to a lot of Old Testament writings. I mean, they were pretty much matched pretty well. I know, uh, I think in uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, they've got Goliath not at seven feet tall, but at six foot tall, which would make him still very tall in those days, a giant. But uh, it's quite a variety, isn't it? It is. And a lot, of them, a lot of them are duplicates what the Pharisees had. But for example, the book, the book of, of Enoch um, was not widely used by the Pharisee temple community. Um, they just didn't believe any of the esoteric things. So, but them finding um, this cachet is just, uh, just, you know, won't happen twice, you know, it's just amazing. And uh, it's preserved, isn't it, because of the weather. That's what really gave a break that this thing was preserved for, you know, a good almost 2,000 years. Most of them were in this like a leather wrapping and then put inside of a uh, vessel. I have one here, a uh, just a cylinder, a clay cylinder, and then concealed, and then, and then, you know, just capped and then, but it was never really, uh, you know, locked down or anything. So we're kind of very, very lucky that they still survived. And of these scrolls, there were just, again, just to clarify with the audience, there were copies of sacred writings, but there were other writings about what the Essenes or the Qumran community believed in. Correct. We think this will happen, this and that. Yeah, the three types. So the what the Pharisees had within their within their writings, there was the new stuff like the the esoteric stuff, the, the copper scrolls, the astrology, um, those type of things, and then lastly, how the community, the sound community, the the scene community uh, functioned, and that's very interesting also. One author, one author that's done a really good job on this, his name is, um, ah, yes, Geza Vermes, G-E-Z-A, Vermes, V-E-R-M-E-S. He's got the complete breakdown of the Dead Sea Scrolls that, for your listeners, that's the one to look for uh, on Amazon. And I use that as my basis for my research, so it's pretty easy to follow that. Hmm, very cool. And what would a more or less uh, an Essene community look like? You talked about Masada and the steps. I'm assuming what else? They were vegetarian. Mostly they vegetarian. were stargazers. What else? How would the community? What, it was all. It wasn't all male, right? They could have. They were mostly male. They were mostly age age forty and above. They left all the material uh, worth behind. If they had any material value when they joined the brotherhood, they gave it to the brotherhood. Uh, when If they were persons of influence, and they joined the brotherhood. They were assigned a servant every day to do their daily duties because every brother was assigned a specific duty. And if they didn't do it themselves, the servant would have to do that for them. Um, 
you know, wealth matters in anything, just like with with, with the Essenes. Mm-hmm. So if you wanted to study on a specific uh, Leviticus or the scroll, the copper scrolls or astrology, uh, you'd have to prove yourself to, to join that, but they, they could potentially get to do that. But I just find it interesting. They were just so well organized and um, took care of themselves, mostly vegetarian. And again, as I mentioned, they bathed every day and had a very, very kind, nice kind of life, you know. Yeah, like you said, a very nice hippie commune. Yes. You could uh, talk to God and their dream interpretation and so forth. Do you know how that would work? I mean, obviously, in the Old Testament, dreaming happens a lot. God appears to a lot of figures like uh, Daniel and I believe Jacob in dreams. So they thought this is Yahweh could come to them or an angel could come to them and bring them revelations through dreams. And that's a lot of times that can influence, you know, a, a, a scroll's writing. And the main book, the, the influence was the book of Daniel. And um, how, you know, Daniel dream is something and make the application apply in real life. Um, you know, he called out Noah, for example, for the, the expectation of Noah to appear for the deluge or the big flood. And um, that came from a dream. So, you know, things like that happened. So they, they just had this incredible skill to, to, um, to do that. And, you know, and be straight up with you, when I do some of your writings, it has to come to you at different, different angles. I mean, if I can't figure it out, I have to think about it and pray about it. And many times I'll get an answer. And then if I go do my research and I feel supported by my research, you know, I write about it. Oh, yeah, I would certainly agree. That's where inspiration comes. And it's a pity that most religions uh, throughout time and afterwards abandon this wonderful place that we spend so much time at where our unconscious and our soul comes alive and our ego kind of relaxes and the spirits can come in and communicate with our maybe even our higher selves. So this makes perfect sense to me. And uh, Vance, uh, what do you think? Or do you have a question for Anthony? Yeah, I do. Uh, Anthony, uh, uh, is there anything in the Dead Sea Scrolls that could be interpreted as referring to Jesus, uh, you know, directly or even indirectly? I think the, it actually really is, is, is directly in the sense that when John the Baptist um asked he was in jail and he uh he heard that there was a new messiah in the land and he sent a message to this new messiah and they asked him who are you his answer was um he said the blind receive sight the lame will walk the lepers are cleansed the dead rise the good news and that told john that you know this new messiah wasn't a scene and that's as direct a link as you'll ever find and locate. And the second thing was that the way Jesus led his life, it was basically patterned after the Essenes. Okay, so it's um, kind of by inference um, from what we know in the New Testament. Correct. Yeah. And I was also wondering in the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, um, are there any uh, pieces of literature 
represented in the scrolls that are the, the oldest copies of known literature? Like, wow, this is the oldest copy we have of this particular document? There are because, for example, uh, I think it was a book of Deuteronomy. The, the oldest copy they had prior to that was found in the sixth century. So some of the, the books they found in the caves were uh, you know, written before uh, one year BC. And after that, you know, they had never been located until after the uh, you know, sixth century. So yeah, the, the, the original, these are some of the most original, original works you'll ever find. So it's incredibly impressive. What's an example of a big surprise, you know, that uh, that they found in the Dead Sea Scrolls? What what did they do to this document? You know, if, uh, assuming the Dead Sea Scroll was the original one or close closer to the original, and somebody redacted it or edited it. What what, what can you think of well, telling us? All the books that that the Pharisees used were within were within the caves. There's nothing. There wasn't. Uh, so much that they didn't that they had that they weren't in the scrolls but what they for example the book of uh the book of enoch that wasn't saved in the entire entirely after they found the book of enoch in um after they found the book of enoch within the caves you know you had eh, let me see what i have here You've got, yeah, you've got the dreams, the watchers, the uh, time travelers, you know, stuff like that you would never find within the Pharisees writing, Pharisee writing, because they didn't believe in that kind of stuff. So that stuff to me is the most impressive thing because um, that gave uh, roots to Christianity. And that's why it's so incredibly important. Yeah, that is for sure. The influence is there. I mean, Enoch, as you said, already has a, the foundation for what would be later Christian, early Christian belief system, uh, sort of a hell, the battle at the end of time, uh, this, uh, the spiritual beings that can save others. It was all there. And it's fascinating. You just mentioned time travel. And you write in your book, Anthony, that Uriel is an angel that can travel in time and link stories of the past and the present. Correct. Could you tell the audience a little bit more about that? Uriel was the, was the primary time travel used by um, that particular writer. And um, angels were considered a no-no before that to even talk about it or think about that. Um, when I got my ex's playbook, the Ermitanya was the time traveler. I didn't know where it came from. Uh, when I saw Uriel, I realized the match there. And what Uriel, what Uriel demonstrates is that, this is what's really interesting. The angels flying into heaven have a dual meaning to a scenes. It could be not only the angel, but humans traveling into heaven. So they had a dual meaning. And the reason that's important uh, for, I noticed within Catholicism is that you know, they, they, they focus on saints, 
going into heavens. And that's kind of, to me, what, what they're trying to get to there is that, that the, the humans becoming angels and traveling. So, you know, I think that's how the Essenes looked at it. You know, it was beyond just an angel figure. It was really more of a human figure becoming these angels and, and, and supporting different causes. The portal of light was a heaven, kind of an orifice, a round circle that you can go in and out this portal, and that was time travel. And they're doing this in, you know, 2,000, 2,500 years ago. And, um, and today we're dealing with wormholes and those type of things now. And they're, they're that far ahead. So what did they really know? Yeah, that is true. A lot has been lost. And it's, uh, uh, have you ever thought why the Pharisees and the Sadducees, uh, rejected the book of Enoch I know even in early Christianity for a while some of the you know church fathers in the second century were fine with the book of Enoch but then they sort of uh got rid of it and it you know Jesus quotes it obviously a few times in the New Testament and you find it in the the epistle of Jude towards the end of the Bible but uh why do you think uh, the book of Enoch never really got that prominent except for the scenes and other groups i guess is the simple answer is just too esoteric too mystic it it doesn't help the guy in the pews or anybody else you know people take off on it and um a lot of times they don't have the maturity to understand how it's used Mm -hmm. Um, and then it becomes very philosophical or opinion oriented so i think they probably like something they could handle the other things you know the the the, at that time they're only pharisees you know, they, they, you know, if there's a habit for them, they sometimes you can over analyze, overstudy these philosoph- these philosophies, and it it loses its it loses its real meaning. And so, you know, trying to get a handle on something you can't define or control, I don't think that felt comfortable with with the rabbis. Yeah, again, there's always exoteric and esoteric in these things, and. The Qumran commuting these scenes, just did they take the idea of spiritual evil that there was fallen angels and uh, angelic half breeds as seriously as whoever were the forces behind the Book of Enoch or the Gnostic Gospels? Or do they simply see the world was fine and the real evil was the Romans and other empires? Or how do you think they saw their cosmology or how the universe was structured? I think they probably viewed evil at, you know, as, you know, maybe a giant or maybe an evil angel that has fallen and they had to deal with that. Um, so, you know, just like, I think religion has that, that thing about it where you know you're always looking for the most negative thing that could possibly happen and and somebody does something you say well they're possessed by an evil and uh, they look like a big giant you know so i think even in those days there was a concern about you know what um, who can be evil yeah always trying to explain what could be evil because uh if you want to just uh pin it all on god sometimes that doesn't look good right 
It's like, hey, what's going on, big guy? What's up with this universe? <laughs> and Paul Maybe too. They did I mean, exorcisms. Yeah, yeah, that is true. I mean, Paul. I mean, obviously, Paul talks about archons, powers, and principalities, the god of this world. So, Paul seems to have uh, taken this vibe of the Book of Enoch too. It was, it was in the air in those days. It was, it was probably. Uh, you don't you think, Anthony? It was probably a common thing to see that there was these dark spirits or loosened angels on the world. You know, back then there was a lot of um, illnesses. Mm-hmm. Um, lepers, um, different skin illnesses had a lot to do with cleansiness back then. But yeah, they, they always wondered where that evilness came from, make this kind of person sick. And they just, I'm sure they signed a name to it. Uh, you know, a lot of in northern New Mexico, northern New Mexico, they do the kind of thing to this day. So yeah, it's it's a it's a funny thing. Um, what do they do in northern New Mexico? Well, let's say if there's a a, a particular illness, uh-huh. they they say, well, that person's got what they call mal ojo, mal bad ojo, eye. yes, <laughs> and they yeah. go, well, where does that come from? Well, I'm like, my probably comes from the spiritual writings from back in the day, and you know that kind of stuff. You know, people kind of believe in, so it does happen. Yeah, it still happens across the world, very much so. So yeah, awesome. So. We great uh, exposition on the Dead Sea Scrolls and couching about these scenes. And again, the story ends, as we all know, the Romans came, destroyed the second temple, wiped out a huge part of the population. And later on, it would be with uh, Hadrian, it would even get even worse in the middle of the second century when Hadrian just decided to kick all the Jews out of Palestine and that was pretty much, and uh, the the Jews from Judea became homeless for a long time. So this is lost forever, or it seems to have been lost. This knowledge is lost for a long time. And then it's discovered in 1947. Before we go, how this maybe fulfills prophecies, Anthony, What? how was, how was this uh, treasure of ancient wisdom found? It was found by ox by accident. Some uh, a Bedouin young boy, about 13, 14, kicked a ball into a cave, and the sound it made reverberated with with some some pottery breaking or cracking. And when he went in there, they found this, and he saw some paper wrapped in wrapped up. He showed one of his elders, and that elders, and that was the start of it. And this became uh, one thing led to another. They brought it out, and then the researchers and scholars, archaeologists, said this is real. This is important. It was initially sold. To, uh, a couple of the scrolls, important ones, were sold to some private investors. Mm. I'm not sure who owns them now. And um, from there, they realized that this is legit, legitimate stuff. So they started searching for more uh, caves and scrolls, and they found more. And all of a sudden, it, it took off from there. Yeah, as I mentioned at the beginning of the interview, the church, the Catholic Church was very interested. So were many Protestants, uh, obviously, and people from uh, 
the new country of Israel were interested because although again the narrative wasn't how they wanted they, they thought they'd open it and it'd be just like the four gospels and yada 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 and then there was the issue have you heard of the issue of uh, John Allegro and the sacred mushroom I don't think so oh, okay well that's another one of the first scholars to um to be appointed he was the only non-catholic scholar John Allegro he started researching the Dead Sea Scrolls and got dug deeper in the Bible. And he came to this theory that Jesus was a mushroom, that these ancients were a mushroom cult and it was all psychedelic. So it kind of derailed the whole thing. So it's, yeah, if you run into it, you see it, but that was again, what sort of uh, derailed it. But I'm sure again, I wouldn't, would you be surprised if these uh, again, ancient hippies were using psychedelics of some sort i'm sure they were trying to change alter their state of consciousness any way they could it wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me that's uh the use of plants was was primary mm -hmm. for healing purposes and medicinal purposes so yes un poquito de mota para poquito de mota. Yes. <laughs> yes. All right. So now so we have the idea of uh the scrolls are discovered and now we are here in the 21st century. Uh, I guess the question asking you and your work with the, the Ladinos is, why do you think that what they were talking about prophesies the coming of the next Messiah in this 21st century? As I mentioned you, it starts with the ages, the constellation ages. So we just completed the age of Pisces, the fish, and now we're going to the age of Aquarius, who is the woman with the, with the uh, bucket of water. So I do, with that belief, I accept that the new Messiah is going to be coming. Now, what happened in Ladinos, because there was repressed by the Christians with, within the Moradas and the Hermandad, that they prayed for their Messiah to save them. And those are passive prayers. And uh, I believe that the creator listens to passive prayers of, of his repressed. These Jewish people have been repressed. And the arrival of the document to me of the Exodus play in 2011, I was asked to finish it by the, age, by the year of 2012, which was the beginning of the age of Aquarius further tells me that, you know, the new Messiah is coming because the prayers from the oppressed Jews are going to request their own Messiah is going to be a Jewish Messiah. I don't know if it's going to be a man or a woman, but that time is now. And at the same time, for a Messiah, there must be a mother who do you think will be the next Mary, the mother of God, as well as, as we know it in Catholicism? Well, inside that Exodus play, when, when it was informing me to inform for me to free out something, they put the sentence out of the blue saying, how is she to be treated? treated? The first time I read that, I was like, who's supposed to be treated? But I realized they're referring to the mother of the Messiah. And that's where it gets interesting because, you know, when Mary, Mother Mary, was around, uh, 
we had um, the emperor the, the, the pursuing Mary and Joseph and trying to find them and then later put to death children aged un, under age two. And the question began, you know, how is, is this new mother going to be treated? And um, I don't know if it's going to be any different. Uh, I don't know exactly when the new mother will arrive. I don't know how the birth is going to happen, but I do believe the Jews are going to get their own Messiah. They're going to get their own Kumbaya. They're going to get their own excitement about having this happen to them. And it's their turn and it's their time. So that's why it's very important. Are there any idea where she might appear or what part of the world? Well, one clue I have is that is the 33rd parallel. Important things happen at the 33 parallel. Um, so I'm going to make the assumption I write in the book that the 33 parallel, you know, in Israel, in Judea, would be a likely area. I don't know when, though. I don't know if it's going to be miraculous. I don't know if it's going to be how it's going to happen, but it will be an earthborn child. And you talked about, obviously, King Herod yes. uh, chasing Mary and Joseph, as in the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus, they have to take the child to Egypt to hide him for a while. Yes. And Herod obviously had some, I don't know if his dream or some prophecies or magicians, I already forgot what, but he kind of knew what was going on in the Gospel of Matthew who is you might say the bad guys on the other side that might be worried about this mary bringing forth a new child well think about it 100 years from now the most powerful player is going to be artificial intelligence and those people who control that who i'm going to call the corporate elite they control the information they control the technology um, it's not a very big group but they're going to be very concerned about this new Messiah giving uh, backbone and hope to people that will counter them because they're basically being AI and uh, corporate lead. They're not believers. So I call them non-believers. Mm -hmm. So they're going to be very curious to see this new Messiah is considered that a threat. So it wouldn't surprise me if they're going to be pursuing this child. Yeah, I think in one part of your book, you even mentioned that they may use some sort of uh, mass forced abortion to eliminate any potential messiahs. Forget just killing young people. <laughs> just... Well, they have the ability to do the what they call the uh, after pregnancy pill. I mean, if they oh, yeah. wanted to apply that to a particular area or a particular region for six, eight months, two years to all these women, you know, it can happen. They're going to have that kind of strength. Yeah. I mean, the technocrats already have a lot of power today. That even goes, uh, that goes without saying. But um, right now, the AI, what do you think uh, the, the corporate lead and the AI, they basically want complete control over the world, right? No threats from any sort of, uh, well, complete control and no worries about some sort of messiah coming. Well, what they really want is to be able to control an individual's consciousness. 
and they're doing it right now with uh, you know, the, the Amazon, the Surrey's, all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. The Googles only give you certain answers that they want you to answer. <laughs> and what's going to happen? I think about a hundred years from now, the kind of control they want. Uh, I shared with you uh, Elon Musk's Neutralink company that is able to to put basically uh, uh, computer plates in your head and control your thinking. And uh, in doing so, they remove the consciousness of your history, your past, uh, your social, your consciousness. And with that kind of control, can, they don't want that challenged. And one, and one thing about prayers and uh, faith is that it will always question that. So they can look at that as a big challenge to, to uh, suppress. So... Um, that's, I think that's going to be a given. Yeah, I think uh, one of the concepts is uh, Kurzweil's concept or idea called singularity, singularity, where we men with where our consciousness blends in with the machine. I, I'm assuming like me, you don't see it as a very positive thing. Well, what they're doing is trying to expand your bandwidth of your mind in order to be able to link with high-end computers and then you work with them and then at some point you become one one with the computer and those are going to be your your uh, people that control uh, soldiers battle soldiers and battle equipment so those of us who, who who want our freedom of consciousness and freedom of faith we're going to be on the the believers and we're not going to be buying into that yeah, that is definitely pretty grim. And I've always thought, also, I believe we have all of us the capability to connect with spiritual powers. Yes. Maybe it's telepathy, maybe it's our soul reaching out to uh, higher realms. But I've always thought a lot of this stuff is done to disconnect us from this, to take away our capability, uh, in lack of better words, to know God. That and the fact that the new Messiah is going to challenge that thinking. That new Messiah is going to be a person of faith and realize what AI and the corporate leader do are, are doing. And he's going to, he or she's going to be able to, to counter that. But, but, you know, the question is what type of skills does this new Messiah, new anointed one has? And um, I can't imagine the aptitude and skills that are needed to counter AI. So it's gonna be a very special being that is born to do that. Yeah, or somebody who never turns on his computer or phone or TV. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or the out there the, huh? Or the opposite, maybe somebody that comes from the corporate AI world that you know all of a sudden realizes what's happening and using his knowledge of how all the technology works and what the real truth is actually spills the beans. I think that's more likely. There's that, that'll, that will happen. The question is, what, what are the skill sets of the Stu Messiah? What, what to be able to, when the Nazarene was born, they knew that child was special. They knew they had certain skills that nobody else could match. So now the anointed one comes here in the year early age of Aquarius, what are those skills? You know, it's going to be amazing to see or hear about. 
I think you'd have to have one foot in the spiritual world where, you know, he would have amazing powers and contact with the, the, the one God and so forth. And on the other hand, he would have to have extensive knowledge about the world so that he could be credible, use, use the media. He's got, it's like, you know, kind of like the matrix. I was thinking of the matrix when you were speaking before, you know, where you, you, you have to be able to control the matrix and transcend it. Yeah. That's valid. That's valid. Yeah, that, that's definitely for sure. I mean, I know in your book, Anthony, you have some characteristics. So you could be a pacifist or a warrior messiah. Uh, Judaic, you could be male or female. He'll believe in Genesis and that this is the age of Aquarius. Uh, anything else that the, you might think are the characteristics of this uh, new messiah that could actually have enough power to take on AI and the corporate elite? It'd have to be something special. It'd have to be uh, empathic. It would have to be, um, can do something with their body in an electronic fashion that other people cannot. It would have to be um, something that AI can't handle. Um, and that, that uh, so when that child is born, you know, that family's going to know it. You know, that, that's what's interesting about that. It'll be so special, you know. It'll be special. And do you feel he will, so he, you think he will be born under a, a Jewish, traditional Jewish household, not Christian I, or anything else? You know, the great fighters I always thought were are from humble beginnings. They're basically poor people. You know, I don't think that ever changes. And I don't think this will be any different. I think it'll be a Jewish household, traditional, but born, uh, you know, if it was born along the 33rd parallel, that'd be one thing. But, you know, um, a family that, you know, maybe themselves have been suppressed or repressed, you know, uh, that 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 somehow provides um, a grounding and a loyalty that you, you can't replace. So uh, that's what I'm expecting. I'm, you know, I, I feel comfortable saying that. No, that makes sense. And uh, how do you think he will reach out to the world? Do you think, again, he will preach uh, the ancient values of these scenes and the, the lost wisdom? Or uh, how do you think he information will set us free, you think? Or do you think he'll be able to call well, upon some spiritual powers? I mean, think of a time from now, 100 years from now, where, you know, uh, AI controls everything. We're talking on the computer here. They're watching us on the computer. So they know every move we make. So this Messiah can, uh, cannot be that way. It's got to be very quiet. Got to be almost like you don't see them. But only a few people know these, these powers and strength that this child has. And um, until it's time for him to rise or her to rise. So... Um, it's not going to be the, the preaching. It, it, you're battling AI. You're not, they're not going to listen to you regardless. So it's, it's uh, it, I hate to say it, it's most likely going to be a battle, a battle ready, you know, anointed one. And that's, uh, and that just goes along with survival of mankind. And so wouldn't, that's what I'm expecting. And you think that the corporate elite will try or are already trying to suppress and appropriate Judaic Christian values in churches today? 
they try to repress my work now, they're going to be very, if they keep, you know, they're going to keep going, they're going to be very harsh. I mean, they're going to take away the tax, the non-taxable status. They're going to, the schools, again, will not be able to, to uh, preach religion or faith. The Pledge of Allegiance will never be the same. So um, they're doing their job, you know, that is to rid faith or spirituality from society. So um, that tells me again, you know, that the anointed one is forthcoming for sure. So um, that's what I'm expecting. Yeah, and they already are, I think, and right now when it comes to millennials, uh, uh, majority don't even go to church anymore. No. And uh, these religions are starting to shrink very much. And obviously people are, well, they're creating their different religions in different ways. So, uh, I mean, do you feel this? I mean, some say, well, you know, every religion has a time and maybe it'll uh, morph into something else. I mean, I personally think we, we certainly the solutions to our problems today are definitely spiritual. You can't. Well, let me give an example. I was driving by yesterday in my little scooter and I passed a new church. It's called the International Church of Cannabis. <laughs> They're not going to survive. And I'm sure they got no fighters. So, you know, um, I think there's going to be a uh, concentration of religions. So instead of having... Um, you know, in this area, let's say there's 22 Catholic churches and uh, 20 Lutheran. Uh, there's going to be, you know, a third of that. And we have to all work together. And the, Jew the Jewish faith will always be its Jewish faith. And they're going to be separate. And, and that's one of my hopeful ex expectations. And um, uh, with that, you know, uh, the corporate elite can have their, their say-so for a while. So uh, let's see what happens. Yeah, these are definitely interesting times, that's for sure. Uh, so much is changing right in front of us. The old ways seems to be, seem to be falling apart, and there is potential and there is danger, but there's also a lot of suppression out there, as we've detailed on the show many, many times. And uh, what do you make, Anthony, of the whole pandemic and uh, lockdown from 2020 till now? Do you see that? I know your book definitely deals with it. Maybe share with the audience about uh, your take on this, what the strange times in 2020 and 2021. Well, I definitely think the, the, uh, pan the pandemic really was a man-made disease, and I've taken enough... Uh, how classes realize that most of those type of uh, illnesses don't just pop out of the blue and just boom, it's everywhere. So it's man-made. Uh, my concern would be, let's say, uh, a particular uh, group wants to infest a particular region only and then hold them hostage. And we have those type of scenarios where, you know, this is just the beginning. Um, the positive side of that is, you know, when you have crisis, many times faith can grow or spirituality or religion can grow. So um, that can happen there. But um, it's not pretty where mankind is taking technology, I guess is what I'm saying, and who controls it and who doesn't. Yeah, and... It is interesting too, Anthony. 
even right now, spring of 2021, uh, it has now become more accepted. And this is from top scientists to say that the coronavirus is, or this coronavirus, it could easily have come out from a lab. Uh, a year ago, people were being talked to, people were being told there were kooks and conspiracy theorists for even saying it was anything but some guy eating a bat in a market in China. Now you even have Fauci and others talking about it needs to be investigated. And it's very possible that this came from a lab. Um, do you think this was an accident? Do you think the elite used this stuff uh, against us or? I believe it's man, it's man made from China, you know, for, for whatever reasons and purposes. Um, if you remember how long polio took to cure or for that to cross a, a country or the chicken pox, it took decades. This thing swept in three months. It's man made. Um, I, I don't think that's any question. Well, uh, right now, it looks like the science is pointing towards your opinion, Anthony. So uh, we shall see what happens. What do you think, Vance, about the, the virus or anything that Anthony is saying right now? Any questions? Well, uh, yeah, I agree. Um, I think uh, there are a lot of things that point to uh, man-made. They call it, um, uh, what is it, extension of function? Um, not sure that's the exact phrase. But there's so many ways the coronavirus can affect the body. It's not just respiratory. It uh, has something to do with the blood, too. And I heard that there are some Chinese scientists that are boasting that, you know, they're winning a battle in the first biotechnical war. Oh, and uh, they have, yeah, they have, the mo they have the motivation. I mean, there's clearly out for world domination. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I think so. That's my opinion, you know, for what it's worth. But, uh, you know, here's the other thing, AI combined with this genetic engineering, you know, AI is kind of a code word right now um, for, you know, ex different ways of computing. And, you know, there are quantum computers, there's neural networks and so forth. So they use different algorithms and that's kind of how they uh, augment the genetic research. And so if they manage to get a capability to manipulate the human genome and manufactured device, you know, viruses at will, they could target certain populations and so forth, it could be very, very bad. So as far as, you know, a new messiah being a fighter, I think the, the <laughs> it's not going to be the traditional battle like they had in, you know, 1 BC. It's, it's going to be, um, the battle's not going to be with guns, it's going to be with germs. It'll be highly technical battle, that's a good point. Yes. Because that messiah has got to be, be able to fight on that level. So I'm expecting when you ask me a characteristic, you know, supreme intelligence uh, is going to be one of those skill sets. Definitely. Um, but, you know, um, those those heavy laden supreme leaders that bad like that, you know, they're not always popular. So it's going to be really interesting to see how, how this is going to lay out. May you live in interesting times, right? <laughs> well, not that interesting. <laughs> yeah, we want to be safe in our little houses before. No, no, let it happen. Let it happen. But at, uh, same, at the same time, Anthony, in one part of your book, you do write that the Messiah, quote, 
might think that the blue earth is unable to be salvaged. What does that mean? Does he get to take us away or does he just like, screw this? <laughs> Here's what's going to happen. Let, let's say the new Messiah, new anointed one is born and him and his family realize that, you know, um, we live in a polluted, maybe uh, radiation infected planet or AI has got a control of everything where there's no freedom, there's no religion. Right. Um, you know, don't even know about the Beatles. And <laughs> that would be terrible. It would be terrible. John <laughs> Lennon, right? Imagine. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And, you know, uh, this Messiah has the ability either to fight this battle against AI or not. And he realized, I can't win this no matter what I do. So that's why it's very important the believers to maintain uh, the genuine faith, uh, maintain the Judaic Christian relationship, um, and very much take care of our blue planet. We really, uh, I'm very happy with Biden taking these steps to, um, you know, the environmental steps. It's not cheap, but it's absolutely necessary. So maybe if the new Messiah sees these steps, and there's a landing place for the new Messiah's philosophies and points of view and, and ability and, and followers and believers to fight, then you have a chance. But AI is not going to be uh, a softy. I mean, uh, <laughs> no. I think the Romans are bad. The AI is going to be about <laughs> 10 times worse. You know, these guys are not going to mess around. So, um, you know, you got you to be tough. Why does the Messiah have to be human, by the way? Could he be some sort of alien or some sort no, of it's gotta be it's gotta be dimensional? It's gotta Why? be earthborn. That's the way that's the way the Judaic faith is, the the Essenes specifically. It's gotta be an earthborn child to be fought to be followed. Well, that's kind of a handicap right there. Look what happened to Jesus. Um, you know, he had a huge <laughs> he had a huge influence, but at what price, right? Well, that, that's why I write that this new Messiah is going to be a battle-ready, battle-driven Messiah. There's no, there's, you, you can't counter AI without that. It's just, it's not doable. So uh, you got to expect that. Yeah. And, uh, but at the same time, our part, what part we can take to be prepared, Anthony, uh, what can we do to fight the corporate elite and AI to maybe pave the way or prepare us or a future generation for tomorrow's new Messiah? I know in your book, you talk about the concept of El Duende. Could you share yes. with the audience about this? I love it. The, the El Duende is a flamenco term. I learned that as being as dancing the scene a little bit. And the term means seeing something an action, a physical action um, that you cannot explain. And that I believe is something that the new Messiah will do. This skill set the new Messiah will have will be unexplainable. You can't even understand how a person could do that. And they, to explain, you're gonna say, well, el tiene el duende. He or she has el duende, the ability to, to marvel you with this skill set, and you don't understand, you don't understand how it, how that's possible. Um, 
The other big skill set is the concept of the continuum. And that's a relationship between the Judaic faith, the Judaic community, and the Christian community. And that is that the Judaic community, because they're going to be in the lead now with the Messiah. It's going to be their call with that. They, I don't think they realize how powerful that is. But, you know, I can't see nine years from now where the Christian society, Christian influence is not going to be a big part of society. And the continuum is going to be that the Jewish community recognize the contributions by the Christian community, and there is a positive relationship there. And how they do it, they do it simply by forgiving each other, as simple as that sounds. And so um, to answer your question, you know, it, it's a number of things that have to happen for this landing place for the Messiah to come. And that, and um, so there, there are big things, but they can be overcome. But you, but, you know, you got to know what's coming at us, you know, it's going to be big. Yeah, but at the same time, uh, at the same time, uh, do you think uh, that Judaism and Christianity can really heal after 2000 years of, uh, well, one religion kicking the ass of the other religion in some very horrible ways? Yeah, well... I mean, again, my ancestors had to hide or else they were going to be killed in the 16th century. (laughs) Yeah, but, you know, uh, the thing about Judaic faith, it remembers everything. That's a positive and a negative thing. You don't don't like to forget anything. Yeah, como mi esposa. (laughs) Yeah, sometimes you got to forgive. You got a family member that messes up. Guess what? You're going to forgive them. And maybe we the, what, I'm, what I'm pointing to is a fellowship needs to be existing between the two communities where they get along and respect each other. You know, right now, like in this country, you know, we shake everybody's hands that we're in the Christian community. The Jewish people that I know, you know, I like them very much. But, you know, I know how they feel about things. Uh, so, you know, there has to be a genuine fellowship between the two. Maybe the Christians need to be to- uh, told off and said, you know, I really don't appreciate that whole damn thing went down uh, with the Nazis and, you know, it was really uh, not handled, handled properly at all. Uh, same with the Inquisition and uh, the Christian community standing up and acknowledging that openly. And, um, you know, we make peace and we break, we break bread and the concept of, of forgiveness of the, the Christians knowing about Jesus of Nazareth. And the Jews have about you know three or four different ways to 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 forgive and and you know uh, you can have faith in other people to get that done but I think it's possible. Anything's possible. Also, another concept that you talk about in your book is uh, you say it's important for the 21st century is uh, the Jewish idea of the Merkava, the flights of the chariot. Why do you think it's important today, or or even the Kabbalah in general? Well, the Merkava is very important because that connects to how the descent of the chariot applies in the Judaic faith. There's two schools of law. law. One is that first one. The second one is, is, is more of a palace coming down as a descent. Um, the Merkava is, is the ones that Christians and the Jews really need to connect to. And um, that really ties to, to, to the Adam and Eve and the Creator. So that's ours to keep and protect. But believe me that the, 
non-believers and AI are going to try to get after that and say it's theirs, but it's not. And but we have to protect that. And I write that in there so people know that's that's in play and how important that is. So these are philosophical things that I know the Judaic faith very much pays attention to. Christians are not so much aware of that. But uh, in order to get along, uh, to understand uh, the Judaic faith, you need, you need to understand that concept. So it's very ac a crucial concept to, to grasp and maintain. And it um, just, I can't, tell, I can't tell you how important that is. Yeah, the, the, the mystical flights. For some reason, they go down. I always thought they would fly up to the God's throne, but you fly well, down, which is... Well, the reason is, Vance, this is part of your question. Um, when the Pharisees wanted a um, child Messiah to be born during the first century to, to combat the, the uh, Romans, the descent was an adult child coming down to fight the Romans. That was the Pharisees' point of view. And the scene says, no, that's not how it works. It's got to be a child born. Uh -huh. So they were looking for a philosophy to motivate their fighters, the Pharisees, to, for, to motivate their fighters and say, here comes the descent of this adult uh, Messiah that's going to fight the Romans. Well, that never happened. And the scenes were trying to say, you know, you know, it's a child that is going to appear an earthborn child because that's how it works so to answer your second question it's always an earthborn child that's going to appear so that's why i say it's very important where this child is born and who mother the next mother mary is that's why that's why it, it works that way you gotta understand how the Judaic faith works it, it it follows a very linear line and it forward and backwards so you gotta understand how they work well, doesn't this sort of fall in line with the uh, Judaic belief that they're the chosen people of, of God, of Yahweh? They've always so, believed that, yeah. Yeah, so the Essenes, uh, of course, must have believed that too. But then they've got to conquer all the other religions on the planet that uh, don't agree with them, uh, especially like for the uh, Islamic uh, faith believes that they have a Mahdi coming and it's a very similar concept, right? I think one of the prophecies of traditional Judaism is that the Messiah will bring peace on earth. Israel will be there, but all the kingdoms will be peaceful. I don't know if this means by gunpoint or charisma. I don't know. I assume it's by just charisma. <laughs> the Jews, the, the rabbis, the, the rabbinistic point of view is that the, 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 the Jews are very uh, sensitive about uh, a messiah coming or a messiah type coming because to them that means the end of days and um so my ending is a little bit different i'm saying that that uh messiah comes it's not end of days if if, if this is handled properly and many jews don't want to hear that so it's a different point of view for them to hear or to believe in so but i just can't see how the creator would would not love his his children, his animals, his blue planet, and not want to send um, the next Messiah to to not protect that. I just can't see how that wouldn't be an objective. And um, secondly, you have people that are going to be making a sacrifice for that Messiah. That there's always going to be sacrifice. So uh, that's next also. So. 
makes sense makes perfect sense uh and just out of curiosity have you ever read anything from the nag hammadi library or the gnostic gospels a little bit when i was doing my research uh, on this last book i would i would touch into them i can't, i don't remember if i remember specific places but you know i felt the connection to the gnostic uh thinking the esoteric thinking i kind of like that yeah i mean there are those that have connected the Gnostics and these scenes and the Therapeutae, again, it's still blurry, but there's there's a, a current, uh, an idea again, and this goes again back to uh, the Book of Enoch and all the ideas and fertile ground that really inspire these esoteric movements uh, later in history, who were, of course, later suppressed by certain factions, the church, the Romans, you name it, wiped out. But good thing in the 21st century, we can revive this. We have these wonderful discoveries that are bringing so much insight, opening eyes, opening hearts and faith. So it's a it's a good thing. And uh, yeah, we are getting towards the end. Vance, do you have any final questions for Anthony? Anthony, do you have any idea, like, is it going to be in the next 50 years, 100 years? Do you think it'll be that long? I mean, you know, well, we just the answered the book of the uh, Age of Aquarius in about the year 2012. The average age of a of a an age of constellation age is about 2100 years so i'm expecting early 21st century um i just don't know when um and a lot can happen you know the creator sends this particular person to combat a specific thing that's a big risk so big risk comes maybe it's time for that new messiah to come that's kind of what i'm thinking i had a trivia question for the two of you Sure. And um, okay, I'm going to read the quote, and I'm going to ask you guys to answer who it, who it is. And maybe if you don't get, I'll give you the year. I'll give it away. Here's a quote, though. My concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. Hmm. Who said that? In what year? Hmm. I have no idea. Myself. Yeah. No, the year was, a, it was a very crucial year for this country, about 1864, and it was Abraham Lincoln. Oh. And so for those persons who are trying to change uh, the biblical writings, you know, they, they, they really don't understand what God's side is. So I find it interesting that all these different churches and philosophies think that, you know, they're, they're, they're believers when they're not, when, you know, in tough time, 1864, you know, Abraham Lincoln gives you some clarity during a very stressful time in, in his and this country's life. So it's something that, you know, you have to keep in mind when you're thinking about, you know, when this new Messiah is going to come in, who's this person going to be? And um, it's going to be, you know, on God's side, and those scriptures align with uh, definitely Judaic faith and Christian faith, uh, genuine. So um, I think that's what we're dealing with. Yeah, and most of their apocalyptic or end time prophecies have been wrong from all these Christian groups. So uh, I think they should maybe step aside. Let the esoteric ones decide these things. So, But Anthony, I th we are at the end. So uh, could you... Uh, 
I will have this on the show notes as always listeners, but could you tell the audience where they can find out more about you and also what books, other books you've written and where they can find all these books? Well, I'm uh, currently on Amazon with all my books. This first book, I'm going to give you the website. It's uh, www.artificialintelligenceandnewmessiah.com. And uh, I have a little blurb there, a little blurb about the book, but I would appreciate if you bought the book because I think it's interesting. And I'm, those one, I'm one of those authors that if you read something you don't understand or want further detail, I'll uh, email you back. My email address is xxicent at aol.com. Uh, this first book, this last book is the third book I've written on the topic. The first one was The Portal of Light. The second, The Shared Life Twin Son, who people have mentioned that, about the Kabbalah from Spain and those kind of influences is in that book. And the two other books I've done are what I call indigenous books. Uh, Watiti, the Native American slave, uh, slave, and uh, lastly, the word decoder. So um, I've been writing about 10 years now, so I hope you like uh, my genres and support uh, the indie authors. Awesome. You heard it here. And yes, as I often say in the show, support alternative media. Don't give money to the corporate media and all those uh, generalize uh, so-called artists because they all work for the well for the corporate elite they're all part for our brainwashing and it is us in the edges of town if you would in the bardos and the niches who are really trying to mine for that information to set us free or those who wish to be free to awaken but yeah, this has been a very stimulating conversation. And as I mentioned, we are at the end. First, I'd like to say, Vance, thanks for uh, keeping us company on this uh, journey. Oh, it's been fun. A lot to look forward to, I guess, right? Yes, the fun has only begun. And Anthony, we really appreciate you coming on Aeon Bide and giving us your time and your insights based on your book, artificial intelligence and the new messiah thank you for coming on and good luck with all your projects thank you both you and vance thank you much